I'm actually thankful to God that I get to preach on this passage uh, today. And one of the reasons I'm thankful to God for that is because I struggle to pray. Uh, And given that I struggle to pray, I'm anticipating that some of you might as well. And I think the best thing to do before we look at it would be to pray that God will help us uh, to hear him and to be praying in response. So if that's where you're at, please join with me in the quietness of your own minds. And we'll say to God that we need his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that um, encourages us to come before you uh, to be people of prayer. Um, We ask your forgiveness for our lack of prayer. We pray that you will make us bold to approach you as our Father, that we'll learn from these scriptures. And we ask this for your glory. Amen. Uh, I, I found a survey Uh, as I was preparing for this, of uh, evangelical Christians and how they live out their Christian life. And one of the things, and this this wasn't Australia, this this survey was actually England. I don't know if it's better or worse in England. Some say England is actually a little more secular now than Australia. Uh, But the survey said that evangelical Christians pray for an average of five minutes a day. Five minutes a day. I wonder how that relates to your prayer. How does it relate to my prayer? Am I above the average? Am I below the average? Uh, but five minutes doesn't sound very much, does it? And um, I'm sure that you've probably uh, heard of Korean church prayer meetings that start at 5am in the morning. Uh, that go for an hour or two before people have uh, had their breakfast and headed off to work. And, and the danger, I think, is we can oscillate between people who struggle to pray and don't pray very much to feeling guilty and therefore kind of feeling like we've got to jump in and go the whole hog and have all night, all day prayer sessions. So how should we approach this and why do we struggle? It's worth pausing and thinking about what are the things that stop you and that stop me from from being somebody who prays? Is it that I think that prayer is unimportant deep down? You know, of course I'm going to say it's important. I'm a pastor after all. Uh, is it that I'm not convinced it's going to do anything? Do I pray sometimes about the things that I think are a fair bet? But if it seems a bit difficult, then maybe I'm, I'm not sure that prayer would be good to... It's like taking a pump, you know? Will, will that actually happen? Um, is it a struggle associated with just our irregularity and busyness in life? Do we find that we struggle to do lots of things and prayer is just one casualty amongst a whole bunch of others. Is it that we haven't made it a a priority? Is it perhaps, is it not become a habit? You know, there are some things that we develop habits with. I have a habit of eating when I get up. I have a habit of eating in the middle of the day. I have a habit of eating around dinner time and call it dinner. And of late, I've had a habit of filling in the in-between times with eating as well, which is not very good as you get older. Um, we, we have habits, don't we? we? We have showers, we clean our teeth, uh, we do things that are regular, we're committed to it. Is prayer something that we haven't formed a habit with? Um, is it that we don't value it much? Is it that we feel ashamed because we don't pray very often? And here's the trick when it comes to guilt. I, I feel that I can't go to God and pray because I don't go to God and pray. So I, therefore I, I won't go to God and pray. And that's a great trap, isn't it, that we're not good enough. And we need to remember as we look at this passage that that this comes in a framework of grace. 
This comes inside an understanding that God is the generous giver, that God has reached out to us in mercy to offer forgiveness, that he gives us a fresh start, and that he doesn't wait for our performance to initiate his grace towards us. And so I want to say at the outset, uh, if, if you are one who feels uh, that you'd like to be praying more or that you'd like to be praying about particular things or that you're not satisfied uh, in your aspect of relating to God when it comes to prayer, don't get trapped in guilt. Rather, be liberated by the fact that God has set you free so that you can pray. One other suggestion, we're getting close to the end of the year. Don't wait to make prayer a New Year's resolution. Um, just think, how, how well do New Year's resolutions go generally? Not very well. Um, might as well call them New Day's resolutions because I've broken most of them by the end of the day. Um, now, this is a great passage for looking at when it comes to prayer. Uh, what we've seen, we've, we've dabbled in this a little bit with Paul a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I think what Paul was showing us was fundamentally how not to pray. Uh, so what Jesus says in verses 5 through to verses 8 are two aspects or, or two approaches that are not the way to pray. The first is um, don't pray so as to impress other people. Don't pray so as to impress other people. I, I remember reading in a book on prayer one time of this guy who stood up in front of a massive congregation in Boston uh, in, in the US uh, and prayed this eloquent prayer that went for a long period of time, to which the next person got up and said that he thought that was the best prayer that had ever been offered to a Boston audience. Now, I wonder if you noticed the subtlety there. Who was the prayer offered to? To the Boston audience, not to God. The, this passage tells us that we're not to pray for impressing others, but it also, I think, is saying that we're not to pray so as to impress God. Uh, the passage uh, talks about not babbling like the pagans, the, the people from other nations, not carrying on thinking that it's because of our many words that God will be impressed. Because God knows what we need before we even ask him. So if it's not to impress others and it's not to impress God, how are we to pray? Well, we can be very thankful that Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Now, what we're about to look at is famously known as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, you can read it here in Matthew. You can read another version of it in Luke's Gospel. Here, it's introduced with this is how you should pray, which I think means that it's, it's a bit of a model. It's a bit of an example. It's not actually the exact words that are on view, whereas in Luke's Gospel, it's more specifically these words. Now, <clears throat> that, I think, tells us two things. One, that Jesus probably uh, taught his followers how to pray more than once. And secondly, that these are good words, but it's also a good example. So let's have a look at it. I want to unpack this with us, um, and we're going to move through this, I think, fairly briefly. In fact... Uh, I thought as I prepared this talk this last week that this would make uh, a series at some time just to take each of these uh, sentences. So let's have a look then uh, with me. First of all, Jesus wants to help us pray. 
And what we, I think, can miss, because we are so familiar with this prayer, many of us, is just how extraordinary it is. So what we've got here is a prayer to our Father in heaven. And that is a radical thing. To approach God as our Father, that, that's telling us that we can have a relationship with God as child to Father. That, that there's a family that's on view here. Um, and the God of the Bible cannot be simply approached as Father. Uh, read right through from Genesis to Malachi. And you will find God mentioned as a Father occasionally as a metaphor for the relationship that he has to the nation of Israel that are called his son. You will not find the average believer being invited to come to God as their father. He's Yahweh, he's the great Jehovah, he's the Lord Almighty, he is the powerful Lord of hosts. To call that one who is the creator and the judge, the sustainer of all things, your father, your daddy, your pa, it's extraordinary. And Jesus introduces that. Now, the word that's used here is actually the word father. But from other parts of Jesus' uh, speech in the Gospels, we see that he used an Aramaic word, Abba. Now, Abba in Aramaic did not mean a Swedish pop group. Uh, It it was an affectionate way of speaking about your dad. And Jesus is saying that we get to approach God as our father. Now, don't underestimate how radical that is. I mean, just pause and think. This world's pretty big, right? Takes a long time even to drive from here across Australia. That's pretty big, Australia. The Earth's pretty big. The Earth's a speck of dust in the galaxy, which is a speck of dust in the universe, and God made it all. And we get to call him our Father. Why? Well, because of Jesus. How? By the Spirit of God. We call God Abba, Father. Don't take that for granted. But it's an extraordinary privilege because we can come into the presence of God as his child. We we get to go into the throne room of God and say, Daddy, I've got a request. Now, this is not also a, a, a private prayer. And I think it's important that we... We notice again what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, my Father in heaven. It says, our Father in heaven. This is plural. Uh, It's not singular. It's not I and me. It's family. It's one another. It's each dependent on God. And therefore, it makes it a very appropriate prayer to pray with one another because he is our Father. We're part of one family. All right? First thing. So it's our Father, for those in the family. It's Hallowed be your name, which shows us care for God's reputation. Now, we need to be clear about this. Um, One friend of mine said that for a number of years as a child, he thought that God's name was Harold. Um, Our Father, who art in heaven, Harold be your name. Um, But God's name is not Harold. God's name is to be hallowed. Now, what does that mean? It's not a word we use very often. Uh, maybe you've heard it in relation to Harry Potter, uh, the, the hallowed something or other. I think one of the books has got that in the title from memory. Maybe you hear it on Boxing Day, you know, that, that some people get to go out and play on the hallowed turf of the MCG. Um, that's cricket 
for you Americans, okay? It's a, it's a big thing that happens here in Australia in summertime. It's called cricket. Uh, what you need to do is buy a tea towel that gives you the rules for cricket. It's fabulous, right? And what we have when it, when it comes to approaching God starts with God. That's the first thing to notice. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, the first desire is that God's reputation be upheld. Um, the, the wonderful thing about the Lord's Prayer is it reminds us that this world does not revolve around us. And automatically, I'm feeling my prayers critiqued. Because so many of my prayers start, God, I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want. Please help, help, help. And Jesus' model of prayer starts with God and the honour of God. This is a prayer that shows that we care about God's reputation. And of course, if we care about God's reputation, then that will have an impact on the way that we live. Uh, We will want God to be honoured in the way we live, the way we speak, um, in other people coming to know God as well, and so on. So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, And then we pray, your kingdom come. Now, notice what this says about God. First of all, that God is king. Your kingdom come. And if we're looking through the teaching of Jesus, uh, then, then we see that Jesus had a lot to say about the kingdom. Jesus came announcing the arrival of the kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. And, and of course... Jesus comes as the king in God's kingdom. Your kingdom come. We're praying, in effect, for God to bring about his rule upon the earth. That's what we're praying when we pray, your kingdom come. Now, I I think that's a a staggering prayer when you consider some of the contexts in where this prayer takes place. Uh, I come from Canberra. They pray this prayer at the beginning of Parliament. And what they're praying, whether they realise or not, is God establish your rule in this country. I don't know that they even know they're praying that. They probably feel that they're just carrying over some ritual from the past. But Jesus is encouraging us to pray that God will establish his rule among us. That, that, that God will so shape this world that Jesus will be seen as the king. That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he's the king over all. You see, friends, as we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, we're praying that God's agenda will be worked out. And as we continue, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are actually committed in this prayer to caring about God, bringing about his plans and purposes. Now, some, sometimes I've I've had people critique prayers that say, um, if it's your will. Right? So someone might say, you know, God, will you please do this and please do this and please do this, if it's your will. And I've heard the critique that you shouldn't pray that. You should just pray boldly. You should just pray confidently. You shouldn't pray if it's your will. Now, I've got a problem there because Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, he says, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will. You see, Jesus' prayer that he's encouraging us to pray is that we will care more about God's agenda than we will about ours. That we'll care more about God's will than we will our own. 
that we'll actually be committed to God working out his good purposes. Now, they don't always look good. And we need to remember this, that God's good purposes aren't always evident at the time. Two examples I'll give you. The first is Joseph. Remember Joseph, the the youngest brother of the 12 children of Jacob? Uh, He was the favourite one, so the rest of his brothers hated him. And they pretended that he had been killed by wild animals. They threw him into a pit. He was sold off to slave traders. In God's purposes, he ended up uh, being taken to Egypt, became the second in charge of Egypt to the Pharaoh. And later, when there was a famine, all of his brothers arrived with, with the dad, Jacob, and there they meet Joseph, whom they didn't immediately recognise, as the prime minister, if you like, of Egypt, who's about to provide them with sustenance because they've been living in famine. And in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph is recorded as saying, what you meant for evil... God meant for good and the saving of many lives. See, if you've been hanging around with Job, when he got thrown into the pit, when he got sold off into slavery, when he got tossed into prison, you'd go, God, what are you doing? But God was working out his good purposes. See, to to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven won't always mean that God will answer, get me out of here. Sometimes his answer will be, no, I'm going to leave you there because it's going to be good for you and it's going to be good for the gospel and it's going to be good for others and for the saving of many lives because that's what he does. But let me tell you the supreme example of this one. Jesus, hanging on a cross, being executed by his own people, nails through his hand, a crown of thorns on his head, a, a a sword or a spear piercing his side. And you think, God, what are you doing? You send your son and you let him die? To which I take it God's reply would be the same as that of Joseph. What you meant for evil, I meant for good in the saving of many lives. So this prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, can hurt. But it's good. It's really good and it matters for eternity. Well, the first three aspects of the prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See who they all focus on? God, 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 God. It's all about God. It's all about God doing what God does. It's actually submitting our will to God's will. It's this is about realignment, right? This, people talk these days, don't they? And you, you get it in, in books, uh, in the self-help section of any bookshop, how to bring your life into alignment. You know how to get your life into alignment? Realise you're not God. That's the starting point. Realise that God is at the centre. We, we need a Copernican revolution where we realise that everything doesn't revolve around me, including our prayers... But it revolves around God. So let's, let's ask God to do his stuff. Because honestly, I reckon God does a better job of running our lives than we do. And I'm, I know the best thing is to give him the reins. When I try and hang on, 
rarely goes well. So the first half, if you like, focused on God. The, the next half <clears throat> is actually looking at our needs and coming before God with requests. So give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Notice again that it's plural. It's us, not me. It's not um, give me my daily bread. It's not give me, forgive me my, my debts and so on. It is plural. Again, it's a corporate prayer. This is a family prayer. But to ask God to give us today our daily bread is to ask God to take care of us. And we need to be reminded of the importance of God taking care of us because we constantly get reminded and hoodwinked, really, into thinking we can take care of ourselves. Or if we can't take care of ourselves, then our employer will do it. Or perhaps our, our bank accounts will do it for us. Or maybe our superannuation. Or, or perhaps we look forward to the inheritance to take care of our needs or the doctor, or the hospital, or Woolies and Coles, they'll surely give us our daily bread. Or the local surf shop will provide our needs, or, or the petrol station, or the local mechanic, or the local electronics store. You see, we live in a world where things are laid on in abundance and we forget that we need the Father's provision. That's why we've got to read the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, the people of God walked for 40 years in the wilderness. And you know what was difficult about doing that? It was going to be many, many years before Woolworths and Coles opened an outlet there. There was nothing. There was no water. There was no food. And so the people of God knew that they were fully dependent on God for food and water. In fact, what they got, you could call daily bread. They get manna from heaven. And they could have manna loaves, manna slides, manna hot cakes, manna donuts, manna anything really, so long as it was manna. And God provided that daily bread for them. And if they decided that they would go and get extra so as to stock up and provide for themselves, went mouldy, filled with worms. It was useless. See, God was teaching them that everything they had came from him. And they had to learn to be dependent. They weren't good at it, by the way. They were hopeless. They grumbled and complained and thought they were better off as slaves in Egypt. That's how twisted we can become. But God provided. I think the thing about a drought is it has reminded at least the rural community in Australia that we need rain and we need God to provide the rain. But in the urban centres, we've still got woolies and coals. And so we can tend to forget that everything we have comes from God and we're dependent upon him. So give us today our daily bread, I take it, is a way of acknowledging every day that, that we depend upon God for our daily needs. And let's not get hoodwinked into thinking 
that if we can somehow store enough up for ourselves, then we won't need God. Because that's the lie of our society. It says you invest enough for your future and you'll be okay. Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a story about a guy who had a massive crop, had so much that he built silos to keep it all, and then he put his feet up and he said, you've got lots of good things stored up for the future. Hey, retirement's where it's at. I'm going to put my feet up and I'm going to eat and I'm going to drink and I'm going to be merry and I'm going to enjoy myself. I don't know if you've read this story from Jesus, but his reply is, you fool. He said, this very night your life will be demanded from you and then he'll get what you prepared for yourself. No, we need God. And the Lord's Prayer reminds us that we need God. So it's a good thing to pray. And then, of course, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. I don't think it's a financial statement here, although it is good to forgive financial debts and to have our financial debts forgiven. But I take it he's speaking here about sin. Um, To forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Um, Sin is often illustrated with the idea of debt. And when you look at this, there are three things at work. First of all, there's an expression of trust. To ask God to forgive us our debts. That's an expression of trust. God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. It's also an acknowledgement that we need forgiveness. It's a confession. And it's right that we trust God and come to him. But it's right that we're honest with God and we own up to what we're like. And, you know, we can do those things confidently because it reminds us that God is the forgiver. And he's made that possible through Jesus. But it also carries with it something else, and that is a commitment to forgive. See, as it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then a little bit later, he says, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, it seems that there's something contingent here, doesn't there, about forgiveness. Is it saying that if you'll forgive everybody else, then God will forgive you? Well, no, it doesn't start with you. It starts with God. God is the forgiving God. And God is more willing to forgive than we are to ask for. But if we know what forgiveness looks like from God, if we've been transformed by the gospel, then we will want to forgive others. Um, a, a few weeks, well, it's probably a couple of months ago now, Paul McBride and Fiona and I were out at Warhope at the Motorfest um, uh, the, the motorbike thing that was out in Warhope and, and we're actually um, introduced to a guy who's, uh, who's in the Banditos um, outlaw bikey group and um, I, was, I was just noticing the, the patch on his vest it said God forgives Banditos don't and I've been reflecting on that later and I think That's probably true. 
But it's very sad. I think it's sad from two perspectives. One is that uh, a determined, intentional lack of forgiveness of others will destroy the person. No better way to destroy yourself than to refuse to forgive. You, you might think that you're bringing harm on others, but for every bit of harm you might bring them, you bring it on yourself. People get eaten up by refusing to forgive. But, but the, the other thing I thought is you're missing out on the extraordinary wonder of receiving forgiveness yourself from God. I actually thought you could change the patch and say, God forgives banditos too. But I haven't been brave enough to kind of recommend that yet. <laughs> you see, it is a wonderful thing to know forgiveness. But it's a wonderful thing to be able to offer forgiveness as well. Does it mean it's easy? No. It wasn't easy for God. For God to forgive us cost the death of Jesus in our place. For us to forgive others means to entrust the justice of the perpetrator to God himself. And that means we need to let go and let God when it comes to people being treated the way they deserve so that we can be free to forgive. If you're struggling to forgive somebody, I have a recommendation for you. Ask God's help. Uh, it may not come easily, but I believe God is in the business of changing us so that we can forgive. I'll give you an example of this. I've got a book at home called Forgiving Hitler. It's actually the testimony of somebody, uh, a, a, a Jewish person, who was uh, put into a concentration camp, family, friends around them, executed, gassed by Adolf Hitler. How could they forgive him? Well, they can't. But God can change the hearts of people. Finally, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See, we need our Father's protection. And uh, this one is a little bit more difficult to understand because God doesn't tempt people. But I think what it's saying is it's a prayer that God will keep us faithful and safe from the attacks of the evil one. And we should ask God to do that. Well, there's the Lord's Prayer. And you might be thinking, but what about the end? Because my experience, if it's like yours, has been that we pray all of that and then we say something like, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Or if we grew up with the King James, it's for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Where does that come from? Well, not the passage. Um, that's kind of been added in, but... I don't think that makes it bad. It's actually a great way to finish and entirely consistent with what the scriptures say beforehand. For yours is the kingdom, God. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen.
comes straight out of the book of Revelation. Well, let's, let's let me wrap this up. Three things I want to leave with you. First of all, how to pray. Well, I'm going to suggest in a minute that we pray these words together. And these are good words to pray. No doubt about it. Christians have been doing that for centuries. It would be good for us to do it today and to continue to do it. We'll come to that. But secondly, this is a good agenda for our prayers. This is a good kind of uh, rule of thumb to put alongside our prayers before God. What do we pray for? How do we pray? When we pray together, what, what things are we making a priority of? Are we asking God to do his stuff? For God to put his agenda front and centre? For him to do what's absolutely best? Or have we slipped into, it's kind of all about me? That's a good thing. I'm putting Greg on the spot here because he's going to lead us in prayer in a second. And then thirdly, um, I think this is a good prayer to shape our other prayers. So as we do pray and we pray about a whole range of different things, sometimes we might wonder, what emphasis should I have in my prayers about this issue? Say, for example, uh, somebody is battling leukaemia. How do we pray for them? Well, this prayer, I think, offers us some good advice. As this young man battles leukaemia, and there is somebody we, many of us know and we're praying for him, let's pray in such a way that he knows that God is his father. Let, let's pray that, that, that his sickness will actually lead people to honour God as God, that it will bring God glory. Um, and that, that people will realise that there's more important issues even than health. But let's pray for his daily need, for his health, for his healing. And let's pray that, that, that God's will of, of bringing people to, to full health, which he will do in eternity, might be experienced here and now by this young fellow. And, and let's... Let's pray that if there is resentment um, in his heart towards God or towards others, that God will soften that, cleanse him of that, that he might know the forgiving pardon of God and that he might be kept from temptation, whatever that might be, to bring glory to God. Well, there's an example. So what I'd like to do now is for us to pray together the Lord's Prayer.